0: The walls of this city will fall down flat. Go in the strength you have and save Israel. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight. You will shepherd my people. You will become their ruler. This is the second week of our series, and a few months ago we began a series called Origin Story, and we talked about the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's where we ended it. We left the people standing at the Jordan River, getting ready to go into the Promised Land. We're picking up the series again, and we're talking about Welcome to the Promised Land. And this weekend we've come to the book of Judges, but before I get into Judges, uh, in the 1700s, a Scottish historian, and if you're a lover of history, you've probably seen this before, by the name of Alex Tyler, he developed a cycle that all great civilizations eventually go through. I want to show you that cycle. We'll put it up on the screen. I'll walk you through it, but it's amazing how accurate it is. First of all, and it begins at the bottom of the chart, you'll notice that there's bondage that leads to spiritual faith. In other words, that sense of trust in God. And then that sense of trust in God leads to courage. Great courage leads to liberty that courageous attitude we saw that last week in the book of joshua i mean we saw that they were all in and and they began to feel invincible because god had promised them and they were walking by faith it was absolutely incredible and then liberty leads to abundance i mean lands that are great lands that are free or lands of abundance abundance leads to leisure and then it's interesting if you study the cycle in detail something happens at this point Because now at this point where leisure becomes a part of the culture, selfishness and self-centeredness now become a huge part of the lifestyle. Then abundance leads to leisure. Leisure leads to selfishness. Selfishness leads to complacency. Complacency leads to apathy. Apathy leads to dependency, usually dependency on the government. Dependency leads to weakness. And weakness leads back to bondage. It leads people back into suffering, back into persecution. That's the cycle. It typically takes about 300 years for a great civilization to go through that cycle. Now, to give you a little perspective, as a nation, we're getting ready to celebrate our 243rd birthday. So you can look at that cycle. You can decide uh, where we are on that cycle. But I tell you what, if you look at it, you realize that as a nation, we're on a pretty slippery slope. In fact, let me tell you how slippery the slope is. A foreign country, Canada, could be the NBA champions. I have a problem with that. I'm that American, right? I'm not comfortable with that. But we're, so you have to figure out where we are on that cycle. This is my recommendation. Eat dessert first. I think we're that close, right? But see, this isn't true just in secular history. It's not true just in great civilizations like Babylon and Rome and and, and like Greece. It's also true in biblical history. And that brings us to the book of Judges. And I do not like the book of Judges. In fact, if I could push delete and get rid of any book in the Bible, I would delete the book of Judges because it is a book of dismal history. It is dark, it's depressing, it's discouraging, but you know what? Here we are this weekend in the seventh book of the Bible. We're at the book of Judges, and you have to know that God included it in the Bible for a reason. And so this weekend, we're going to figure out what that reason is, what we can learn from the book of Judges and I'll just let you know ahead of time it may make you a little queasy but we're going to get through it together. Now I want to begin because last week we came off of the high of Joshua. Everybody was jacked up about Joshua, right? I want to show you a few insights first about Judges and then some contrast between the book of Judges and Joshua. First of all, let's begin with the name. Uh, when we think of a judge, we, we tend to think of a, you know, a robed individual who sits behind the desk in a courtroom and he kind of oversees the outworking of legal procedures. But when you see this word judge in the Bible, it's actually a reference to men and women that God raised up to deliver the Jewish people from bondage. So when you think of a judge in a biblical context, think of a deliverer. In fact, that's what the word actually means. And depending if you read through the book of Judges, how you count, there were somewhere between 13 and 15 judges that God raised up. All of them were strong. All of them were rugged individuals. God brought them in at a crucial time to bring deliverance to the nation. This book covers a period of about 300 years, 1375 B.C. to about 1075 B.C. And for those three centuries, God does everything he possibly can to get the nation of Israel into the promised land and on its feet. But it seems that no matter how hard God tries, the people decide that they're just going to continue to disobey God. I mean, they're in this new promised land. I mean, they got freedom. They were slaves for 430 years, wandered around the desert for another 40 years. They are free. It's, like, it's like your freshman who's getting ready to go off to ECU or UNC Wilmington. I'm telling you, the lid's going to come off. Nobody's looking over their shoulder. This, so when you read the book of Judges, it's like Jews gone wild. That, that's what's going on in the book of Judges. Now, there is a huge contrast between the book of Joshua and the book of Judges. For example, Joshua, as we saw last week, it's a book of victory. Judges is a book of defeat. Joshua is about a motivation to fight. Judges is about motivation to, you know, just keep what you have. In Joshua, the people are mobilized. In Judges, the people are settled. Last week, we saw in the book of Joshua, there's a sense of unity and determination. But when you get to Judges, there's disunity and there's anarchy. We saw last week in Joshua, the land was unconquered. They were beginning to move in to conquer the land. But by the time you get to the book of Judges, the land is theirs. The land is conquered. In Joshua, you have a generation of warriors who are willing to fight their way through the land. When you get to Judges, you have a second generation, doesn't know how to fight, they don't even want to fight, in fact, they're pacifists. Joshua is a book of patriotism, national zeal. Judges is a book of national indifference, status quo, which is Latin, you know, for the mess we're in, right? And let me show you why these people were interested or were fine with just maintaining the status quo. You can see it in several verses. You'll see a theme here. Judges 17, verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. I actually like the New American Standard translation of that verse better. It says, every man did what was right in his own eyes. You read in Judges 18 verse 1, in those days Israel had no king. Judges 19 1, in those days Israel had no king. You see it again in Joshua 21 verse 25, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did whatever they thought was right. Now just so you know, that's what we call anarchy. And do you know what these verses are screaming to us? They're screaming, you know what? We don't answer to anybody. If it feels good, do it. If I think it's right, I'm going to do it. If it makes me happy, I'm going to do it. That's what's going on here. It's interesting. John Hunter has written a little book. It's like a commentary on judges. It's called Judges in a Permissive Society. This is what he writes. There is a stated fact. No king. No one was in control. No one gave the orders. No one was responsible to anyone. As a result... Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. These are brutal, ugly, wretched accounts of the natural outcome of people doing what is right in their own eyes. Notice, not what was wrong in their own eyes. They could always justify what they did, and so it was always right. In other words, it was a culture of people who lived by the philosophy, wrong is right because I say it's right wrong is right because i feel like it's right starting to sound maybe a little familiar right and hunter concludes this is the hallmark of a permissive society by the way it always amazes me when the people think people think the Bible's irrelevant that it's outdated i'm telling you reading the book of judges is like reading the new york times it's like reading the wall street journal in fact what you're going to see taking place in the nation of israel remember these are god's chosen people It is going to blow your mind. And I'll just go out on a limb here and say, as Americans, it should scare us. A chill should go up our spine because you're going to see parallels where the exact same thing is happening in our culture. Now let's address this question. Why after the days of Joshua? Remember the great victories—the great victory where they walked around Jericho and the wall fell down. The great victory at Ai. The great victory when they took on the five kings of the Amalekites and how they had amassed a huge army. And God knew they were tired, so He sent—they they were tired, so He sent down the hailstones just to wipe out their army. All of the amazing things that God did. Why would these people, who were so courageous, so victorious under Joshua, why would they now fail so miserably? Well, to answer that question, you got to go back to Joshua. So let's go back. This is the end of Joshua's life. He knows he he doesn't have much time left. They've been fighting through the land. They've been doing their things. And he has some last minute recommendations and encouragement for the people. And he says in Joshua 23 verse 5, the Lord your God himself will push them. And this 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 is a reference to the enemy in the land. He will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. What does that mean? well, they're in the land of Canaan. It's the promised land. Joshua says, God's already said, I'm going to give it to you. I've done my part. You've got to do your part. Now understand something about this. At this time in history, Israel is not yet a nation. Israel actually consists of 12 tribes. You may have heard the 12 tribes of Israel. So they're not a nation, which explains why they have no king. And each of these 12 tribes, they have received a certain portion, a certain section of the land. It's theirs to go in and claim. They got to run out the enemy. It's kind of like squatters, right? However, although they've defeated in mass the armies of the Canaanite, there are still little pockets of snipers here and there. Little pockets of, of idol worshipers here and there. Little pockets of enemies who will just give you fits. Now you may remember last week I said that the promised land does not represent the uh, heaven for the Christian. It represents the Christian life. That every day we are in a battle. And as long as we drive the enemies out of our life, all the enemies out of our life, we will experience the life that God designed for us to experience. But if we begin to tolerate enemies in our life, we will never experience that victorious life. So, Joshua is saying, Listen, you got to get rid of them. You got to get all of them. All of them, they got to go. You got to get all the enemies out of the land. In fact, he goes on to say in Joshua 23, verse 6, Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. In other words, obey God's word, obey God's principles, listen to his precepts, listen to his attributes. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their God or swear by them. So he says, listen, don't talk about Baal. Don't talk about the Astra. Don't talk about Moloch. Don't even mention their name. And I think a lot of people hear that and think, you know what? That's why Christianity sounds so narrow, right? But you got to understand this was God's way of driving out the enemy. It was God's way of cleaning up the land for his people so they could experience the promised land as he intended it to be experienced. And then he goes on to say in Joshua 23 verse 7. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you, so be very careful to love the Lord your God. In other words, Joshua Joshua says, don't get soft. Don't compromise, see? Tighten your belt. Roll up your sleeves. Don't sit out in the rocking chair on your front porch, you know, just thinking that everything's going to be fine. Don't you rest until the land is cleaned up. Don't you rest. Don't you back off until the enemy is driven out of the land, which brings up the question, why did these people who had been so victorious, who had been so successful under Joshua, why do they now fall so miserably? Let me ask you a question. Was it rapid? No. Could they see it coming? I don't think so. I'm telling you, the erosion of a culture is never noisy. It's always silent. It's imperceptible. I mean, and before you know it, it's just happened. Before you know it, you're looking at each other saying, how in the world did we ever end up like this? Someone sent me this quote. It is so, it is so perfect to the book of Judges. Gradually, the unthinkable becomes tolerable, then acceptable, then legal, then praised. And we see this in our country every time we turn on the news. I wanna show you how it happened in the book of Judges. Judges chapter one, verse 19. It says, the Lord was with the men of Judah. Remember Judah, the 12 tribes. Judah is one of those 12 tribes. They took possession of the hill country but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots filled with iron. And you read that and you think, wait a second, isn't God bigger than chariots, you know, of iron, you know just filled with iron, iron chariots? Certainly he is, unless you're not focusing on God and you're only focusing on the iron chariots. Because if you're not focusing on God and his faithfulness that he's already giving the land, what you're going to do is you're going to back off and you're going to say, you know what, we got the hill country. I don't think there's any reason to be greedy. In fact, I think what we ought to do is I think we ought to put a a focus group together. And we ought to just brainstorm, what are some other options of dealing with these Iron Chariots? And so, but instead of dealing with the Iron Chariot situation, you know what they did? They basically ignored them. I think they're no different than us. I'm sure they thought, you know, if we ignore them, they'll just go away. If we ignore the problem, they'll probably get tired of us. It'll just fix itself. They'll probably just leave. Well, it says in Judges chapter 1, verse 21, the Benjamites, another one of the 12 tribes, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. Notice this, to this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. But Manasseh, verse 27, that's another one of the tribes of Israel, did not drive out the people of Beth-sharon, Tanakh, Dor, Eblim, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined, look at that, they were determined to live in the land the Canaanites we're not going anywhere so the Hebrew people are like well you know what I don't think they're gonna go I think we just need to think this through I think we need to be creative I mean guys think about this maybe somebody got up on the whiteboard and wrote what do we do when we have a lot of Canaanites with iron chariots and they don't want to leave let's process this and they begin to give answers and finally the light bulb went on and said I got the answer Hey, guys, we're in charge. We'll make them work for us. I got an idea for a bumper sticker. Coexist. Put it on all our chariots, put it on. They'll just work for us. And I guarantee you, they're just like us. They justified it by thinking, you know what? They work for us, we'll have more family time. We'll have more leisure time. We're even going to have more time to worship our God. So you get to Judges chapter 1, verse 29. It said, nor did Ephraim, another tribe of Israel, drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. Judges chapter 1, verse 30. Neither did Zebulun, that's not where the Mudcats play, that's actually one of the tribes, one of the tribes of Israel. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Katron. Judges 131, nor did Asher, another tribe, drive out those living in Arco. Judges 133, neither did Naphtali, another tribe, drive out those living in Beth Shemesh. I think you're starting to see a trend here, right? And before long, now the tail wags the dog. And you get to Judges chapter 1, verse 34, and it says the Amorites, remember they're the bad guys, we looked at them last week, they confide the Danites, the Danites were the tribe of Dan, the good guys, to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And now all of a sudden, these little compromises, here and there, they begin to take its toll. Now why did they fail? I'll give you the reason. Incomplete obedience. That's just a nice way of saying complete disobedience. Because anytime it's incomplete obedience, like eh, partly right, I'm telling you, it is complete disobedience. And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, Mike, listen, I think you're being a little hard on them. They took out most of them. That's better than nothing. At least they weaken them. Here, here's the problem with that kind of logic. God said, Take out all of them. In fact, God, you go back and read the book of Joshua six times in the book of Joshua, God said, Don't screw around with the Canaanites. That's my paraphrase, but that's kind of what he said. Don't don't mess around with them, okay? Don't dink around with them. But you know what? They're like, hmm, and they chose not to obey God. By the way, let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered why God just just doesn't get rid of all the bad stuff that trips us up as Christians? I mean, why doesn't he just wipe it out? Things like alcohol. Things like drugs. Things like sex and gambling. Things like pornography. All those bad things that, you know, stumble, right? Right. He could do that, after all, he's God. But here's the question. If he did that for us, would we be tested? No. And so he leaves those things in place, understand not to tempt us, but to test us. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I mean, he created the Garden of Eden, put Adam and Eve in and says, it's all for your enjoyment. One little thing, ignore that tree in the middle of the garden. Stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did he do it to tempt them or to test them? He did it to test them. I want you to see how it plays out in the book of Judges, chapter three, verse one. These are the nations the Lord left to, what's the word? Test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. So God had a reason. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's command. In other words, are, are they going to trust me or they are not? Which he had given their ancestors through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Termites. I mean, they're all there, right there. And the Israelites are right there in the middle of them. But here's the problem. The problem is all the ites didn't adapt their lifestyle to the people of Israel. The people of Israel adapted their lifestyle to the nations that were living among them and they they justified it by thinking things like you know what come on guys let's be honest it really doesn't seem fair to kick them out of their homes that doesn't feel right i mean if the aclu gets word of this they're going to be all over us right i mean after all they they were here first and then one guy said yeah and one other thing have you noticed they got some really attractive women you think i'm kidding look at how it plays out see the result judges chapter 3 verse 6 They took their daughters in marriage, gave their own daughters to their sons, and served their gods. I mean, after all, when you marry a Canaanite woman, you got to live with her. And she's got her own gods, which means she's got her own belief system, and she's got her own value, and she's got her own priorities. And you don't want to be the one nagging her all the time about the little bronze god she keeps up on the mantle. After all, man, we all know, happy wife, happy life. Just let her keep her little bronze god on the mantle. I know it's not real. It's just a piece of bronze. It's not a big deal. Now understand, all of these little chinks in the armor, all of these compromises sets into motion a cycle that is as relevant as what we're experiencing in the great United States of America today. You can see the five factors that made up the cycle in Judges chapter two. Here's the first factor, just disobedience. Just looking and hearing and reading God's word and just saying, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Just disobedience. What did God say? Drive them all out. You know what that word all means in the Hebrew? All. It means all. <laughs> Drive them all out. That would be all, right? They didn't do that. See what it says in Judges chapter 2 verse 11? They, they forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt they followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. So that was the first one, just, they were just disobedient. Second factor, bondage. That led to the bondage. Judges chapter 2, verse 14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. God's like, okay, you don't want to work with me? Then I'm working against you too. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. By the way, let me just say something here. As Christians, I don't know how to say this kind of, but I'll say it, we gotta get past this idea that getting what we want our own way based on disobedience to God's word is gonna bring freedom and happiness in our lives. Let me tell you something. People who buy into the idea that substance abuse is somehow gonna bring happiness and freedom, buy with it incredible bondage. Someone who's married who buys into the idea that having an affair is somehow going to bring happiness, you know, and, and, and freedom is, is buying with it incredible bondage. The young person who buys into the idea that premarital sex is somehow going to result in freedom and happiness buys with it incredible bondage. I mean, if you're married and you said for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, In sickness and in health, the death do us part. But about two years in, you're like, well, I'm just not happy. My needs aren't being met. I'm not very fulfilled. And you think that by being disobedient to God and breaking that covenant, not only that you made to each other, but you made to God, is somehow gonna help you find happiness and freedom. You're buying with it an incredible bondage. I'm telling you, I don't know how to say this any clearer. Disobedience to God will never bring freedom. It always brings bondage of the worst kind. So there's disobedience, there's bondage. Here's the third factor, misery. Judges chapter 2 verse 15 whenever Israel went out to fight the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them just as he had sworn to them they were in great distress look at that verse where's the happy lifestyle where's the freedom see it's not there there's an old saying the way of the transgressor is hard i'm telling you as a christian if you're not a christian don't worry about this stuff but as a christian when you knowingly disobey God, when it says it right here, and you decide, I'm not going to do that, you're going to have a hard time finding peace in your life. It is going to elude you. So disobedience, bondage, misery. But let me show you how cool God is. The fourth factor that makes up the cycle is delivery and rest. Deliverance and rest. Judges chapter 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges. There's our, there's our heroes. Who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's command. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented, literally that same Hebrew word is repented. It means God changed his mind because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. Now just so you know, that's what we call grace. That's what we call grace. God brought rest. Sometimes the rest lasted as long as 80 years. Sometimes it was as short as 20 years, but there was rest. But my point is, when God raised up a judge, there was deliverance. There was rest in the land. But then the fifth cycle, the fifth factor in the cycle, and this is where we struggle. Compromise. Judges 219, but when the judges died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt. In other words, it just keeps spiraling down. More corrupt than those of their ancestors following other gods and serving and worshiping them. Now notice this. They refuse to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Now, here's the question. What happens when a society buys into that kind of lifestyle? What happens when we become so arrogant, so proud, that we refuse to acknowledge what God's word says and we refuse to give up our evil practices and our stubborn ways? We just want to do what we want to do. I want to show you the ultimate consequence. You can see it in Joshua chapter 19. I want to show you the level of disgrace to which the nation of Israel dropped after this had run its cycle for about 300 years. In fact, you'll even begin how they they, they, they begin to think differently and see things differently. It's amazing. I like how Paul described it. Romans chapter 1, thinking themselves to be wise, Paul said they become fools. That's what's going on here. This is the end of Samson's life. Remember Samson. The strong Samson, Delilah cut his hair, lost his power. Samson was a judge. And at the end, he said, God, if you'll give me strength one more time. And remember, he pulled the temple down it destroyed all these people that were worshiping idols. So Samson, he was a judge. He's gone. After Samson's death, there's this incredible event that takes place in the nation of Israel. Judges chapter 19, Israel reaches its lowest level in the entire Old Testament. The story revolves around a man who has a concubine. A concubine, and that's, a, that's another sermon some other time, but basically a second-class wife. I hate to say it any other way, but in the Old Testament, that, that's what it was. This wife doesn't really like her husband, so she leaves him. She runs away. He tracks her down. He finds her. He's taking her back home. On the way home, he stops off at a city. He doesn't know where to stay, so he plans to spend the night in probably what we would call a park. But an older gentleman who lives in the city comes through the park and he sees him and he says, you can't stay here, it's too dangerous for you to stay here, you can stay at my house with me. And so while this concubine and her husband go home with this older man, they're staying at the house. While they're staying at the house, some guys gather outside the house, and they want, I don't I can't, this is what's in the Bible, I, you know, I'm just going to say it. They want to have sex, not with the women, they want to have sex with the man who's visiting with the concubine, Okay. Now look how the older gentleman responds. Judges chapter 19, verse 23. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the guys outside, they won't listen to the older gentleman. So the man, who's the guest, who has his concubine, basically takes his concubine and just shoves her outside to the men, said, take her. The men abuse her all night long. Then they let her go. We pick it up in Judges chapter 19, verse 26. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. There was no answer. She was dead. Then the man put her on his donkey, set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife, cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts. How many tribes of Israel were there? 12. And sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, Such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came out of Egypt. You ever watched the news or read the paper and thought, wow, nothing like this has ever happened before. Until a few weeks later, something else happens and you say, wow, it's never been that low before. There's no way it can get any worse until something else happens and you realize it's getting worse. And if you continue to read the book, You'll find that chaos breaks out and there's idolatry that leads to immorality. It results in anarchy. Thousands of people are killed as a result of the revenge. And you read the book of Judges and you think, who could have ever dreamed that this could have happened to God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, the nation through which is going to become, become the Messiah, the Savior of the world. But I want to make a statement here. The problem isn't the nation of Israel. The problem isn't the United States of America. The problem is the people that make up the nation. And I worked, it felt like forever, on these concluding statements. And then I said, forget it. I'm just going to give them to you. But these are the stair steps down you see in the book of Judges to a crazy, broken world. Here's the first one. And this is true across the board. Depravity results in permissiveness. You can count on that. Depravity always results in permissiveness. You see it in the book of, Jack, uh, book of Judges. You, you see it in the greatest nation on the planet today. You see it in our country. If, 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 if you ignore righteousness long enough, and when I say righteousness, I mean God's word, God's truth, God's standard, God's absolute. If you ignore righteousness long enough, I promise you depravity, Depravity will breed the illegitimate child of permissiveness. And all of a sudden, no longer is wrong, wrong. Wrong is now right because we feel like it's right. It's right because we decide it's right. It's right because I say it's right. And you know what? It's all interwoven into the humanism of our day. So depravity results in permissiveness. Second, permissiveness leads to rationalization. I mean, let's be honest, in our day, it's no longer politically correct to refer to anything as bad, anything as sinful, anything as wrong. You can't refer to something as being perverse, because see, now things are redefined and rationalization takes charge. And it's because, see, when we define something, all of a sudden it doesn't sound so bad. For example, and I want to be sensitive here, but you need to understand, it's, it's, it's It's not killing a baby, it's a woman's right to choose. Now that sounds honorable, right? That sounds respectable. See, I just heard this week, it's no longer a fetal heartbeat. Now it's an embryonic pulse, but that doesn't sound so bad. And again, if you've had an abortion, just guess what? I have a staff full of women that many of them had had abortions, multiple abortions. It's not the unpardonable sin. God can certainly forgive you. God is the most gracious, loving, like, man, let's move forward. Let's put this behind us and move forward. But see, as Christians, at some point we have to realize that God creates life, not us. We don't create. It. And we have to learn how to honor what God does. See, you know what? I was watching a thing on, on, uh, on a doctor-assisted suicide. But they don't call it that. That's, that's euthanasia. That's putting old people down. You know you what? Know, it's end-of-life care. See, we can swallow that. Before you know that's not a big deal. End-of-life care, right? It sounds kind of dignified. It's not, nothing's wrong anymore. Hey, you know, it's Hey, it's just an alternative lifestyle, right? But to understand, you get rid of the guilt by renaming it. And then that leads to the third statement. Rationalization encourages rebellion. I'm telling you, as a country, we're sitting on a powder keg. And it's because all the rationalization and the total ignoring of God's principles, God's precepts, God's absolutes, it encourages rebellion. See, nations don't change. People change. And bad decisions aren't randomly made, you know. Thoughts prompt changes which lead to decisions. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap your character. Sow your character, you reap your destiny. And I say that because some of you, forget the nation, you are listening and you're at that crucial structure in your life where you're making some tough tough gut level decisions. And if you're being honest, you're ignoring God's word and you're you're being pretty permissive. Now here's the good news. Wow. Aren't you thankful that we have a patient and merciful God? You can even see it with the people of Israel. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 22 because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed For his compassion never fails. They're they're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. But let me tell you something. If we don't respond appropriately to the love and the mercy and compassion of God, eventually he will discipline us. And I know whenever I, like last time I said something about discipline during the 23rd Psalm, and I got several emails from people saying, the God I worship would never discipline people. Well, I don't know what God you worship, but you don't worship the God of the Bible. Because Hebrews... Chapter 12, verse 5 says this, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. See, why do you punish your kid for playing in the street? It's not because you think you want to keep them from having fun in the street. It's, you know, it's dangerous in the street. So you punish them. And I think God would say, hey, man, for your own sake. For your own sake. I think as Christians, we ought to put a little class back into godliness. You know, Christ said, be light of the world. I think we need to get back to being the light that we were created to be. I'm not saying being an oddball. I think when Jesus was on this earth, he was the most winsome person you could have ever possibly met. People flocked to be around him. You don't have to be obnoxious, but it's okay to stand for something. And by the way, just so you'll come back next week, we're gonna see this in the story of Ruth. Ruth is the great, one of the greatest stories. I mean, to go from this to Ruth, Ruth is like a Hallmark love movie without the bad acting. Okay, I mean, this is, but, but Ruth, Ruth is the perfect example. And I think God put it intentionally where he put it. It's the perfect example of what God will do in someone's life when they have a character, when they have integrity, And they're committed to living life his way. And we're going to have a great time looking at it. God, thank you. Even for the book of Judges. Because it's just a reminder how little cracks in our life, before you know it, they become chasms. And Father, the reality is every one of us have an Achilles heel. Every one of us, every day, every day, get up and look square in the eyes of something that we struggle with. And it would be so easy in the culture we're living in to justify it, to to, to put it off, to say, but it's just the way it is, or the Bible's so outdated, or da-da-da-da-da, or it didn't really mean that. But we see over and over again in your word that when we are obedient, you show up and do amazing things in our life. You bring victory. So, Father, whatever crossroads we find ourselves at this weekend, wherever we're sitting, whatever campus, whether it's online, May we find out what your word says. And may we be obedient to you. We love you. And thank you for your grace and your mercy. In your name we pray. Amen.